Hi, I'm Super Buzz. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. If you've not listened, where have you been? Come on, get involved. We talk about all things energy, sustainability, and of course, net zero. We're here to talk about business and what it can do to make the planet better. We're here to talk about science. We're here to talk about you. So if you'd like to be involved, then do drop us a line. Listen in, tell your friends, tell your business partners, subscribe. And for all your news around net zero, follow us on futurenetzero.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Hello, I'm Simi Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. And today, the ultimate net hero. I am joined by Chris Skidmore, the author of this weighty tome, which you probably have heard of, the whole Mission Zero. Chris has been an MP, I think, since 2010. Chris, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and then you've obviously been entrusted to look at our Net Zero strategy I think it was Liz Truss who entrusted you. But before we start that, you're not a scientist. You're not someone from the energy world. So before we even get into this, why have you been interested in, in net zero? No, you're absolutely right. And and sometimes I, I definitely feel I suffer from imposter uh, syndrome when I meet all these brilliant uh, individuals who are able to come up with new technologies, to, to work out uh, new ways of uh, yeah, producing clean and renewable uh, energy. My background is actually, I'm a historian. Yeah. Uh, my other books I've written are on Richard III, Edward VI. <laughs> I've just done a, a book with Ian Dale where I've done Edward V. And so I'm interested in narratives. I'm interested in how you frame the detail, how, how you put together a story. So for me, the, the challenge is, is how do you sell net zero? How do you make that narrative a compelling one that this is a transition that's going to happen? This is a transition that isn't going to be a burden. It's not something that's being imposed on people. So what I'm really keen to do is almost use my historical skill set and apply that to, to the transition. And that was when I, I did the Net Zero review, Mission Zero. You know, for me, actually, that the narrative frame was as important as the policy recommendations. I, I said to people, all those experts, those scientists, yeah, this is your review as well as much as mine. Yeah. You tell me what you need to happen in terms of the detail. And then I'll shape the narrative. I'll weave the tapestry together, bring all those golden threads. And so Mission Zero is about setting out this new narrative for Net Zero, why it is an economic opportunity. And even if there wasn't a climate crisis, which there clearly is, we should be doing Net Zero anyway for the opportunity it presents to drive new efficiencies, new ways of doing things, new productivities, new opportunities to create jobs and growth. And so that's where I've sort of used my background, you know, my, my non-scientific background, because I think that's equally important in selling the transition to people, is that we people, we need to actually achieve the transition. Obviously, people forget this, but MPs are people. <laughs> MPs have interests. And generally, people find policy areas they, they're passionate about, whether it's because they've lost someone through a disease or they're looking at certain things. Why particularly the net zero? You know, when, when Liz Truss, you know, was going for her nomination to be the leader and then you said, look, will you back net zero? And, and she said, yes. But why have you had an interest in that? Is it because of where you've grown up and where you've lived? Is, is it because of your traveling and you've seen things and you've had a epiphany about the way the environment is? But I'm trying to get to why this policy element has been so passionate for you? So I was the UK's science research and innovation minister. I've always had an interest in, in research and, and, and development. 
and the opportunities of new technologies that that, that might bring uh, to the country. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Bristol, yeah. you know, big aerospace sort of capital. Uh, uh, you know, Concord was developed there. That was something my father and my grandfather worked upon. And I've seen then, you know, that the, the birth of an idea and how that can then generate a whole new industry is quite an infectious one. And I just happened, I think sometimes in politics, you happen to, by accident, fall upon a particular area of interest. Right. I was science research innovation minister, then energy minister, Claire Perry, yes. uh, had to step down uh, for family circumstances. And I was asked to step in. And that was the moment then when the UK decided that actually we were, we were going to commit to net zero. Uh, we were also bidding for COP26. And I just happened to be in the right place at, at the right time was the energy minister that signed net zero into law. But I didn't really see the the opportunity till about a year later you know, when Glasgow COP26 came around uh -huh. and we started seeing net zero go viral. There are lots of other Absolutely. countries then looking at the UK saying, well, you can do it as a G7 country. We could also make this commitment. And that was when I realized that having signed net zero into law, I should come back and really try to promote net zero and, and you know, see this as this moment where the rest of the world was sort of lit the touch paper. Uh, and it was sort of spreading across. You know, and that actually, I've always believed in markets. Yeah, I'm a centre-right conservative politician, and I passionately believe that nothing will happen unless markets engage you know, and adopt and at scale uh, develop solutions. So for me, understanding that net zero is a, is a market-based solution that sectors can then demonstrate the change and accelerate the change globally sort of brought my conservatism together with my interest in, in technology and the ability for looking at a transition. Uh, and so that's what I sort of decided to then focus all my time on. And then I also realized the third part of that sort of tripod is, is getting the political uh, climate yeah. and acceptance right. And that's when I realized on my own side, the conservative side, there were some people who were quite turning against net zero as part of a culture war, mm -hmm. claiming it was going to cost too much. And I thought, yeah, actually, net zero is a really conservative, center-right, markets-based initiative. It's the least we can do to get to 2050. You know, we must be focusing on 2030 and delivering, halving our emissions. But I wanted to promote also that, that, that vision of, of this being about economic growth and opportunity, which it, for me, it patently is. So it's sort of a net zero is a wonderful blend of all my different interests into one. I often uh, refer to it as a Rubik's cube. You know, you've got to get all these <laughs> tessellated pieces aligned in, in the right sort of uh, shape. You you did this. I mean, the book, I only got a hold of it, but it's, it's out there now, Mission Zero. And it's, it's a weighty term. It's about 500 pages. And just to give the viewers and listeners a kind of background to it, the whole review you could say it was quite a bit of time. You could say it's quite short, eight weeks, right? Eight weeks you went round. And this is what you've put in the book. You've engaged in 52 roundtables, 20 locations, 1,800 calls for evidence, met with 1,000 organisations. The problem that many people have about all of these things is often it seems to be, and we're speaking as a SME ourselves, that... When ministers go and get this call for evidence, they go to the biggest voices and they hear the biggest people talking about it, not where the crux of the issue will have to be delivered, which is small businesses, individuals. Doing your journey here uh, in those eight weeks, how much can you say what you've written here is based on what 
ordinary businesses think rather than what the large, big yeah. corporates who are already signed up to doing this for reasons, whether you call it greenwashing or reasons of, that, are, that are very good. But they, they've been across this for many years with various policies. Yeah. No, and you're absolutely right. It is a real challenge because we now almost have a you know, potential twin track yeah. uh, widening gap that, that is potentially occurring. Yeah. You know, as you say, that the larger corporates, you know, those that work on, you know, on international supply chains that can afford the sustainability directors to help sort of plan their transition, you know, have, have one version of net zero. The other version of net zero is, is one that you know, competes against the bottom line. And you know, mm. the challenges is actually just making sure sure the day-to-day -day reality of tackling you know challenges around paying your tax bill coping with inflation you know how do you ensure that net zero isn't just one other you know thing that is being done to you correct and so uh, during the review yeah we had a number of round tables of which we obviously engaged other trade organizations like the fsb to make sure they could bring sort of small businesses along i was keen to get out of london though um, because that for me was you know really important because yeah, what tends that. to happen yeah is if you organize events just in london then you you only those people who can get the time off to come to london turn up and obviously that certainly isn't necessarily smes no so zoom was quite useful for bringing people virtually across the country and there's some there's some really you know good regional bodies like say net zero northwest which engages you know the sme community in the north northwest one of the ones I was really struck by, we went to the black country and we had a, a meeting with through the um, local enterprise partnership, which brought along a number of SME sort of related industrial uh, companies. And that was something that yeah, really influenced my thinking on industrial uh, decarbonization. You've got plenty of what we call dispersed sites, you know, sort of brick makers, forge masters who haven't can't, you're never going to access massive carbon capture storage and utilization no. centers like on, in the ports. So how do we make sure their voice is heard? And pillar three in net zero, net zero in the economy, was was you know, has a strong focus on trying to look at SMEs and trying to say, look, these are the sectors. I think we identified uh, SMEs, agriculture, you know, construction. Again, you know, one way the big boys are you know getting on with this, the Barretts and the David Wilsons of the world. But yeah, there's plenty of smaller tradespeople, and my worry is. That for the moment, you know, net zero is doesn't have to be as relevant to their lives. You know, people t taking voluntary decisions to decarbonize and to, to make the shift. My worry is because the big bigger players, because the international markets are suddenly now moving with transition plans, with focusing on creating net zero plans, this will make its way down the supply chain quite quickly. Without and suddenly, that, yeah. they're deciding to not purchase goods from SMEs, and my worry is that these SMEs you will suddenly find themselves stranded, as it were, uh, without having the ability to make the change. And, and it's who's going to be able to provide that advice? Who's going to be able to provide the tax incentives, the tax breaks? I held a, another roundtable last week with SMEs to talk around sort of you know, what potentially we could create in terms of a sort of like a charter mark. But, but the government needs to back it. You know, they can't be simply uh, companies buying other services from companies. Yeah, we need that ability to support those who need help. And that's what the, the review is trying to identify. By all means, yeah, let's go for, further faster yeah, for those that can. But for those that can't, yeah, let's not berate them. Let's not sort of you know, criticize the, the situation they find themselves in, for no fault of themselves. 
and let's work out a plan. I think there was a issue. I mean, look, I can speak for uh, so we are one, right? And so when we talk to businesses and we talk to the big ones as well as the smaller ones, I think it's pretty clear, as you've just said, you know, you take a big brand like M&S, they've been doing this work for 10 years, right? But if you talk to smaller businesses, what they worry about, and I think this has not been answered, I apologise, I haven't read the whole book yet, but the real crux of it, and I know there's a chapter on finance I want to discuss in a moment, but what they worry about is that net zero is going to cost them, right? This is what small businesses say. It is a cost, and it's a cost that I can't fund directly. I might think I would like to do this. Also, an inability to act. If you're in a rented office and your landlord doesn't change the lighting to LED lighting or doesn't put in double glazing, you're powerless. We had that very situation. So just to get to this point here, how do you feel this book and your idea of going out there and championing will actually make a difference to the sharp end where people are going, I like what you're saying, Chris, and I agree with it. Our staff agree with it, but I haven't got the money. And or more common, I'm powerless to do anything about yep. it. So I think that second point around agency, yes, it's really you know, important because when it comes to net zero, there is a sort of recognition that we can't just do this individually by ourselves. We need to move together. The caravan needs to all move in one direction. Mm. And yeah, the whole point around a caravan is it takes the the weakest you know with it. It, it doesn't sort of leave them trailing behind. And so understanding that, that there are opportunities both for government and also for industry and finance, yeah, there's a real, yeah, really important in the review to focuses on you know, what can be done, private finance to you know, create great products, investment vehicles for the future. Yeah, the Net Zero Review was not just about setting out recommendations for the opportunities. It was first identify the barriers, what's stopping people, from actually being able to act and how can we address those barriers and then with that it might be that somebody else is able to take action which improves the lot of everyone else so one key aspect of that is around you know, data provision and making sure that people actually have the ability to be able to make decisions huge barriers at the moment people can't make decisions they have the data to be able to do it yep absolutely and absolutely. another question as you say you mentioned landlords you know, we, we specifically called for regulations on commercial properties so that when it came to energy efficiency measures, that commercial should go first, as it were. But actually, when it comes to you know, looking at the larger landlords, they have the ability to, to move and say tackle some of those challenges around the properties that maybe their tenants can't necessarily uh, influence. But ultimately, it, you know, it's about how do you create the ecosystem, the environment in which then the markets can emerge and flourish? Because ultimately, that's where I want to get to is that yeah, these things happen because they just reach an economic price point and a utility point yes. where it's the right thing to do. You say here, and this, I think it's a good point to bring this in, you've got a chapter here about kind of securing net zero. And in that, you talk about finance. You said, provide funding via government-owned investment. The government needs to utilize public financial institutions to provide long-term certainty to businesses for the net zero transition and de-risk projects to attract private finance. The way to do this, you're saying, is using various public financial institutions. You talk about the UK Investment Bank, British Business Bank. None of this, to be honest with you, Chris, is accessible to most small businesses, right? The government's tried, you know, they had the Green Investment Bank for a while and that didn't quite work. It's gone to Macquarie. You've had 
the whole idea of kind of getting, um, you know, insulation done. And there was a scheme, remember, tail end of, I think it was 21, which was, you know, you can go and get yourself insulated. And again, this difficulty, I, these are out there, but what's being done to allow businesses to understand how to access this? And do you think that financial opening up has happened enough from the government owned financial instruments? So I think there's two parts to the challenge. Ultimately, no, it's not happened and it won't happen until two things occur. The first is to make sure that we have these long-term programs. So if you look at elsewhere in, in the world, they're beginning to recognize you can't just have these small pots of money, these competitions to which they've got like a window yeah, of yeah. about two months to apply for. It needs to be almost sort of part of the fabric of the constitution where you sort of, you know, you look at the KFW for energy insulation in, in Germany. France are now doing something called Ma Prime Renov. And what they're doing is they're saying this is going to be open for at least 10 years. Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. Of course, yeah. Credit's guaranteed to the 1st of January 2033. And in contrast, the UK, at best, yeah, we've now got the boiler ins yeah, insulation scheme running to 2028, 20 I think, maybe. That was one of our recommendations. We pushed it forward. But no one has any certainty that these things are going to continue. And as a result, private finance doesn't come in to help co-finance opportunities uh, that exactly. could emerge. And then secondly, there is the, that wider challenge you know, around how do you build sort of consortiums? How do you build groups by which you know, they could achieve finance? And that doesn't exist at the moment. And one of the reasons why I'm so keen on pushing a place-based approach is I've begun to see certain regions, certain cities beginning to come together, lots of smaller organizations, SMEs, and saying, well, actually, if you will, if, if either the government or larger you know, investment funds, pension companies will help fund a transition for us, we can spread that money. So, and I, and I think it's really you know, interesting. So are you, are you talking about clusters? Are you saying that businesses need to get together with local authorities? and create clusters that, that can then leverage to try and get some of this money. Yeah, exactly. And that could be both public funding. Right. And there's some interesting stuff that's going on in the West Midlands and Manchester, where they're running the Trailblazer Pathfinder projects, where the, the actual authority, the combined authority, is being given a, a longer-term sort of pot of money to be able to plan out what needs to happen. And what's interesting is if you do this planning locally, if you engage, and you've got the Energy Systems Catapult has something called these local yes. energy area yeah. plants. Believer in those, and Wales is now getting in, yeah, that those in place for every local authority. Then actually you'll be able to spot where you can collaborate, where you can make efficiencies. And then when it comes to those clusters, it's like how we get the government to potentially put some money in, which becomes like a, a catalyst for potentially more private investment. And I'm ho hoping you know, that we might see you know, more of these Bristol City leaps where they brought in 400 and something, 424 million pounds for an American company to come in and help decarbonize a, a heat network. And I think that's where we've got to try to find those, those opportunities and, and don't see it as sort of binary just between governments and business there are different pathways there won't be one size fits all solution for every different area and it's, it's having that sort of ability to recognize you know what is going to work in teesside may not that work in bristol um but you, you've got to be locally led and that's where i also think there's confidence for smes because 
SMEs don't necessarily trust politicians like myself in Westminster, <laughs> but they do trust yeah. local authorities more. No, they, they do. do. They do. So that, that's an, an understanding yeah. that you can ring someone up and potentially there might be someone you know, who can on the ground who they can see face to face or they can actually have the opportunity uh, to engage with more regularly is really important for building trust and confidence. I want to talk about supply chains. And this is a point that's probably a global point. If we go down this, and I've done podcasts on this, a lot of what we're looking at in the future is rare earth elements, right? And people know this, and they all know the stories about this stuff. There is a real issue, and you address it in, in your book here. You talk about the supply chain for crude oil is not as resilient for the UK as it should be. Stakeholders, uh, such as you name some big companies and uh, institutions, need to participate in getting a critical mineral roundtable together and looking at securing this. In the longer term, the energy security will look very different. And this is a big issue. It's a global issue. We all know what's going on with China and where they've been with their Belt and Road. People look at the way that certain mineral deposits are around the world. There's some exploration, I know, I don't know if it's happened yet, of looking at sort of Cornwall for, for lithium for us. But if we're going to join this, we need resources. Are you not worried that plunging us into this kind of pathway, which involves using a lot of these resources, there's, let's, let's park the environmental argument for that, is one where actually we are fallible because we don't have those resources here or we don't have the access to them in the way other nations do. I mean, I think but the counter argument is when we look at the, our existing energy infrastructure, even with oil and gas, firstly, that also uses a number of critical Yep. Uh, metals and metals so that it's not immune uh, from that challenge you know secondly our, our north sea basin is rapidly running dry and we're going to face an even larger challenge around dependency on foreign petro states foreign suppliers of oil and gas sold on the international market unless we diversify and create a greater energy security through more renewables through more clean power through more nuclear that i'm a, yeah, also a strong supporter of yeah and trying to recognize it's a bit of a false flag because there always is going to be a resources challenge no matter what you focus on in terms of its solution because everyone else is now focusing on recognizing that this needs to be a solution for their own problems but then with this and you know, we've seen this with net zero with people analyzing their supply chains and working out you know, that maybe business as usual you know is something that doesn't have to happen the very focus on looking at sustainability and where you source your materials and metals from actually there are new partnerships and opportunities you know, emerging and that's what's really interesting about net zero is how it actually gets people into a different mindset from the past and i think we you know, what we've seen with uh, most recently since the reviews was published is the uk is beginning to commit to critical mineral clubs with a number of democratically like-minded nations and i think this is also a really important part of the transition which is the Yes, everyone is moving in this direction, but we have a choice around working with our allies to ensure, and also working with the global south, to ensure that the provision of energy is aligned with the, the opportunity to demonstrate to people the better world that they can create is not just one where you know, they have a, a more secure form of energy, but also potentially that they work to become more democratically secure and aligned and free. 
Uh, and that's a you know, challenge where I hope you know, that we're going to link up with the US, with Canada, with Australia, with a number of nations to secure our own resources and that, that, that we could strengthen our you know, opportunities for trade as a result. But you're absolutely right. You know, the reason why we have pillar one of securing net zero is if we don't think now about what we need yes. you know, and we don't prepare then we open ourselves up to, to threats. And you know, we've seen that with semiconductors. You know, we, we should learn the lessons of where we have you know, put all our eggs in one basket. People can't get an EV, Chris, because they're still waiting for the chips. It's, it's incredible. Exactly. And you know, this was a, a, a problem that could have been mm. anticipated, but we thought tomorrow would never come. And what I don't want to do is you know, see net zero as being sort of somehow rosy and it's all going to be fine. It won't be. There will be bumps in the road. It is a difficult sort of moment where... We have to anticipate lots of different things happening. But the more that we can begin now, or the sooner we can think through these problems, actually, the more secure we'll be. And I think it's about you know, understanding the, the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns to misquote. I, I wonder who up. said someone. Yeah. <laughs> the rums were up. Before we end on, two elements I really think are very important to cover. Net zero and the individual. And it's really good. I really like this chapter. This one I did read fully. And this is your, you're talking about agency, affordability, accessibility. I have a big problem with net zero and I, I run Future Net Zero and my advocacy for it is I think it's great. But I fear that it's a middle class transition. I fear it's a wealthy transition globally. And I've covered that on this podcast. At present, I think there's a disconnect between the individual and, and what's happening. I think people who are of a certain educational standard go, yes, this is what we want to do, and it's all great. But for the vast majority, they're coping with the fallout from the energy crisis. They're coping with the, the living standard living crisis. How do we ensure, Chris, that we don't have a net zero for the lovely leafy suburbs of North London or Bristol or whatever, and the people yeah. in other areas are just left behind because they can't charge their car on the street or they can't get access to the right systems to allow them to get insulation or they can't get solar panels. Yeah. This is, I think, for me, the biggest thing that worries me about Near Zero. What's your take on it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, partly, the yeah, we we took we could talk about net zero and obviously my concern is you know net zero always sort of you know turns heads and you know people either have one view or a different view about net zero but what does net zero mean what's the outcome yeah you know, we're seeking to achieve and we need to you know, obviously do more to humanize those stories and try to yeah it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be net zero you know, it's about potentially showing how you can have cheaper energy bills yeah. and potentially you know with that think about how energy is energy is almost like a service. So to what extent I think we'll be in a very different place where people won't be necessarily buying their heat pumps. It might be that their heat pumps are installed and you know they they, they buy an energy package just by well, rent. Way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, like businesses I, do. Yeah. I, it's sort of normalizing mm -hmm. this transition that yeah, we live in like exceptional times, but people go through these changes all the time. They don't have to be an imposition. You know, I don't think you know, even in the poorest areas that they're, they're able to. Yeah, everyone has a digital TV. We came off an analog system. Yeah, it's true. And you know, everyone in some way has. For those who drive, and it's important to recognise, not everyone drives. You're absolutely right. That you know, it, it, but and that's why sometimes you know the, we always focus on EVs because it's a sort of middle class obsession with the Telegraph and, and elsewhere. But you know, we've got to provide a better alternative. So that means you know whether it's public transport. It's absolutely. Really we can't carry on having a crap bus system outside yeah. of London. 
And then that's the whole thing. Even in London, you know, some of the buses are still chucking out loads of crap. And yes, we've got some electrification. But those things where someone who lives in a rural area, do you fear that all the thinking behind it is all about big cities, big business, and we're missing out on the poor and we're missing out on the rural communities on this? I think also it's about reassuring those communities that it's it, not everyone is going sort of hell for leather towards this, that, that you know, we, if you've got an oil boiler, no one's sort of saying you were going to rip it out. And exactly. Yeah. Replace it. And, and the net zero strategy, even before the net zero review is really key. No, it clear. Nobody is going to be forced to, to take out their existing boiler. No one is going to be forced to sell their petrol or diesel car. And it's that question about, you know, it's actually better to keep going with your petrol car until it's on its, until it's basically end of life than it is to change to an EV and then go through four, you know, three or four EVs. That, you know, Correct. The point here is, is, is trying to show to people that, you know, yes, there will be some people moving further faster and that's you know, all good and well. But ultimately, this is something that is reasonable. It is proportionate. It, yeah, the reason why it's 2050 is because it is trying to take everyone with us and there will be exemptions. You know, no one's saying like in Bath, you're going to have to rip out your... Georgian, you know, frame windows and replace <laughs> Put some nice insulated double glazed yeah. plastic in. Yeah, I know. I get it. I want to end with the, your last chapter, which is where you say the risks of not zero are now greater than the risk of taking decisive action. The risk of inaction will damage the ability of the UK to attract investment and scale up its infrastructure. We need stable long term programs. We're entering a very, very volatile political environment heading up to the next election. You've seen some rowing back by Richie Sunak's government on some of these commitments, I don't know. You've seen the whole issue of affordability. And, you know, like you, I believe in nuclear, but there's loads of people in the net zero world who believe the only route is electrification. We talked about protesters when I met you in person a few months ago, and you said, look, you know, the, the whole just stop oil thing, you can't stop oil tomorrow. Yeah. But we do need a stable commitment to do this. I don't think we've got that right now. And I think we're still thinking five-year terms. And if Labour get in or whoever gets in, if we have a hung parliament, it doesn't matter. Are you fearful that there isn't this ability for us to just make this happen? Because the political will is still unclear. It may say one thing, but actually uh, events, dear boy, as they said, yeah can have a real effect on political thinking. Yeah, and I think the real challenge is, how do you ensure we have democratic consent for a transition yeah. that is needed, but at the same time, how do you create the structures that ensure that almost guardrails can be placed around policies that sort of need to happen? I mean, if, you know, if people had their way electorally, people would have a fully funded NHS. Of course would pay less tax yeah yeah there are trade-offs and obviously it's up to politicians to make the trade-offs and be unpopular as a result because what people want you know, can never happen and and, it, and it's the same i think with the no, number of public policy decisions that i think you know most voters also understand that you know there is what you want and you know what is possible 
and it's the art of the possible. I think you know, what we've seen with the NHS is quite an interesting example where we've seen an institutional structure you know, have, have, have public support, has been established, it has gone through a number of twists and turns over the past sort of 70 years, but the broad principles you know, of that institution yeah. remain the same. And that was is, is still vitally needed to help support those in most need who wouldn't be able to afford healthcare. And it's a sort of similar position, I think, on the energy transition. Yeah, we still have millions of people living in rubbish housing that's falling to bits the big, you know, with no insulation. And this is not necessarily a net zero challenge. No. It's a basic challenge around the fact that you know, things fall apart, you know, cars fall apart, houses fall apart. You've got to be able to upgrade things you know, as you go through uh, time. And net zero is, is allowing us to sort of say, look, status quo, the present, you know, isn't acceptable. And it helps put a new lens on this as well. So I think it's, it's normalizing it in the everyday sort of conditions of, of people is really important. But then also, how do you create those the legislative structures, the regulations that outlive politicians? And I think we've seen that you know, with our Climate Change Act, our carbon budget processes. We just need to see more of this. And I think you know, I campaigned for Ofgem to have a net zero duty I met with the CEO actually yesterday to talk this through. And it's like, how do we ensure that, like, we're like with the NHS, we ins- we give more powers to pro- the professionals. And it comes back to the point around the scientists, the engineers, yeah. the ones who know how to do the transition. How do we make sure that they're empowered to get on with it? And so the Net Zero Review was commissioned by government to tell government you know, what they need to do to make Net Zero happen in a more affordable way, how actually getting on with the job will cost less. If you, if you kick the can down the road, it's only going to cost more and delay you know, will mean that sort of ultimately it, you know, taxpayers will be on the hook for that. Chris, is government listening? I think you know, out of those 129 recommendations, I, I think I've counted up that the government has agreed to 70 with a timescale that I set. They agreed to another 30 but not with the timescale I said. They disagree with about 29 recommendations. I think the government's guilty of green hushing at the moment. They're actually doing some great work. They're just no, not no, no. proudly advertising what they're doing, which is a, a tragedy because we could still be leading internationally on showing actually the UK is a leader. And actually it's not due to politicians that they're a leader. It's due to businesses and industry and the energy sector. You know, this is something that we should be proud of because actually Britain is leading. We've decarbonized by 50%. We're half of the way there. We've actually grown our economy by 70% at the same time. And that's down to business. It's not down to necessarily the politicians to take the credit. And we should actually get out there and champion and say thank you to those who've managed to actually achieve what they achieved and then listen to them about what they need to do to get to the next half of the journey. You're not going to stand as an MP after the next election. Uh, You tell me you're committed to this what is your hope? Well, my hope is that I still remain somebody who's able to articulate what is needed. I'm still intending to work on policy, if not you know, being a politician. That's why I went into politics was for policy reasons anyway. So expect me to still sort of publish reports, books. I also think that the frameworks are, are in place now that I want to actually be part of the, the, the job of getting on with it, you know, I've, I've had 14 years as a politician where I've been able to talk a lot. And I quite like to now time, be able to do something then, Chris. Is that right? Do something about it. <laughs> and you know, Net Zero is there for 2020, 2050. We've got 27 years. 
you know, I'll hopefully still be around come 2050. And I want to be able to see out that opportunity in the next 27 years to actually make sure this happens. Are you hopeful that we, I always say to people, this is enormous what we're doing. You know, it's enormous. It's like electrification or the creation of the NHS. There's going to be a lot of pain, a lot of affordability, but it is the right thing to do. Do you think that it doesn't matter who's in power in the next 10 years, that we are still on our pathway to get to mission zero? Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic. I think regardless of what you know, is being said politically, the fundamental tectonic plates are shifting. Uh, and this is around decisions that are being made internationally, investment decisions in boardrooms as I speak. But the money is not going on oil and gas. It is going on solar. It's going on renewables. And recognising that this is shift is happening uh, is so important for me to make sure that the UK doesn't fall further behind because you know, we're putting at risk so much inward investment opportunities, you know, so much export opportunities. And you know, I don't want us to be in a place where we say you know, we were too late to the party and too late to the game. And this is something where you look at even just this year alone, investment in solar has now equaled that of oil and gas. 10 years ago, oil and gas was six times that of solar. Yeah. You know, pink are moving so fast that we are in a remarkable period of time. Chris, it's been a pleasure. I will get myself through this. As they say, available in all good bookshops. Is that right? That's right. So I brought it out <laughs> you know, ahead of COP28 to sell it to other countries. Say, you, know, you could be doing this as well, part of your transition. Excellent. It's been, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. We'll be talking to you more regularly, I think, hopefully over the next year, especially once you've left your political duties. But Chris Kidmore, thanks for joining us on the Net Hero podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. If you'd like to comment on what Chris has said, then get in touch on social media. Remember, the Nehra podcast is all part of our family of content on futurenetzero.com. We're there to make the difference for businesses. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Catch you soon. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.